Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1973 film, The Exorcist. So, um, once again, it's kind of one of these films that it's so culturally just parodied and just known yeah. that it's like even if you haven't seen this film you know the basic plot summary yes it's there's this actress her name is chris mcneil yes and her daughter reagan it seems that it's just a normal family she's an actress they're separated but she notices that her daughter was playing with a ouija board and then after that the daughter starts acting strange she becomes violent she starts using profanity and then over to see psychologist, and they say there's a disorder, but I think you know she starts acting more and more aggressive and violent, and other strange things happening to her, like the, her bed is shaking, the room where she she is in is becomes very cold, her face diff, her face starts becoming grotesque and disfigured, mm-hmm. and she her voices change into different people, and she realizes slowly that. Her daughter has becoming possessed by a demon, and she needs an exorcist. And then from there we meet Father Karras. Father Karras is a priest at Georgetown University. He's a psychologist there helping other priests. And he is a man who is sort of losing his faith. He feels that he is not good enough at his job. He wants out. He also, on top of things, his mother just recently passed away. And the family sort of blames him because... He's in a profession which doesn't have a lot of money. They said if he wasn't a, just a psychologist, he would have been, made more money and been able to take better care of her. And the de- when he is consulted by Chris to see the Reagan, the daughter, the demon sort of takes advantage of that. And eventually, he reaches out. He gets the approval for the exorcism. And then we meet Lancaster Marin, who we see at the very beginning of the movie. And... Both of them try to perform an exorcism. Um, then Lancaster Marin dies in the process, and then Father Karras sacrifices himself, saying, Take me. And the demon leaves Reagan's body and enters him, and he has the strength to jump out of the window, basically kill himself in order to get rid of the demon. And that's. At, and then at the very end, we see that Reagan is now fully cured. She doesn't remember anything, but the demon has left. So even though Karis is dead, it's somewhat of a happy ending. That's sort of the premise of the movie. And even if you haven't seen this movie, you pretty much know the whole plot, even if you haven't seen it. Yeah. And to be honest, um, um, it had been such a long time since I'd seen this movie that I actually needed the plot refresh because literally the last time I saw it was on television. And I guess it's probably 1979, 80 or so. Um, and what struck me uh, a lot um, on this most recent viewing is how shocking and jarring this movie is. And I know that was kind of, um, for want of a better term, kind of the, the, the going currency in the 70s with films. You know, you, you, you moved from... The era of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where uh, things are relatively tame, um, relatively, I won't say antiseptic, but cleaned up. It's right? the Hays Code. There was no rating right. system. So you go from that to this period in the 70s where uh, 
there is all-out effort to shock audiences. And uh, the, the tamed version that I had seen on television left out a lot that is so in this. So were you shocked at some of the stuff? I was very that? shocked at it. Um, there are things that they have the character Reagan doing that uh, uh, I, I, I hesitate to even describe mm-hmm. in this podcast. Um, so it, it, the first thing I was thinking of when I was thinking of ethical uh, issues revolving around the movie, I was thinking, well, it's going to be ethical issues revolving around the plot. Uh, but now that there were certain things that I saw in that film that uh, raise ethical issues around making the film itself. Um, I found some interesting information on in terms of how difficult it was for Friedkin to find um, people uh, to, or to, or a person to play the role of the daughter because of the things that daughter is going to be required to do or say uh, in the script. And apparently uh, uh, several prominent child actors or two or three of them, Pam Ferdin was one. I'm forgetting the other, uh, uh, the, the name of the girl that was in Family Affair was another one. And both, in both of their cases, the parents looked at the script and said, there's no way I can have my kid do this. So they went to a slightly older uh, child actor. Um, Linda Blair. Linda Blair. Actress, yeah. And uh, the mother and Linda Blair both looked at it, and they, uh, the uh, Friedkin and, and the script writers, you know, uh, kind of, interviewed her and of the three she was the one that seemed to be most emotionally prepared to deal with um uh, some of the things she had to do in that script which i'm not going to reference um but i found that angle of it to be interesting and uh, uh very much a reflection of cinema in the 70s and i'd say literature in the 70s in that yeah, it this was, is based on a novel and all that you're talking about all that gruesome stuff that you yeah. see in that movie that's all in the book yeah it's very graphic graphic sexual stuff that i mm-hmm. think they would have a very hard time getting past uh uh, uh, decision makers, oddly enough, today, I don't think they could make this film at that level of graphic, uh, that level Especially of, involving a minor. Uh, uh, yes, and, and especially in today's uh, um, atmosphere regarding Hollywood and children. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, so, you know, it, it made me think, you know, what was the purpose of this? Was it simply shock? I mean, this is very much a 70s thing, um, uh, making shocking cinema. Um, I don't know. Uh, I tend to think that there was historical precedent in the actual case that you bring mm-hmm. up in your notes here of Roland Doe in Roland 1949. Doe. As far as I know, it was a boy, not a girl. Yeah, and that boy did things equally graphic and said mm-hmm. things equally graphic. Um, so there's there's that historical accuracy angle, but I also think there is an they're they're really trying to portray the. The demon is just pure evil. Yes. I mean, this is a demon that's yes. taking advantage of this very young girl. Yes. And just destroying her mind. Like, well, something with just stuff that's, like, we're not going to describe it, but it's just absolutely atrocious and yes. horrific what he's yeah. making her do. And I, and, and I think they're trying to portray what absolute evil would be like. Yeah. And uh, at one point, the, the, the spirit actually says it's the devil. We're never quite sure if it actually is or not. But uh, well, it's, can, it's it's go- the, the demon. They don't reveal the name, but yeah. we see the um, 
that statue of it in the yes. beginning. It's the demon is Pazuzu. Yeah. They reveal that in the second movie. I think they might reveal the name of it in the book, but they don't reveal it in the in this movie. But yeah. the demon is named Pazuzu. Yeah, there's that's the, a real demon. I mean, he, it sounds like a silly name, but that is basically yeah. reality. And this is just for our listeners. Pazuzu, there's a there's a sta- uh, at the beginning of the film, um, Merritt is doing an archaeological dig um, in Iraq. And he happens upon this large statue of Pazuzu. But he also finds a little figurine of the head of Pazuzu. And so uh, that's there. And I, I, I like, uh, I cringe at these scenes. But at the same time, I, I, I think they're effective portrayals of what a demon should be. A completely evil and depraved entity should be. Something it, from hell. Yeah. Something that literally has no compunction in abusing and manipulating and torturing. You can just see he loves torturing not only uh, the girl, but um, um, the, the two priests. And the family. And the family. He, have, he, he loves doing it. He's a perfectly malignant demon. And I don't think you could have got that across in any other in more antiseptic way. Now, having said that, I still cringe yeah. at what 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 the script has has uh, uh, um, the girl do. Yeah, and that that um, and just that shocking content, I think, is one of the reasons why this film is held in such high regard. Because this was 1973. Yep. Just six or seven years earlier, you about you were talking about you. There was an ab- abolishment of the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code rating system in Hollywood was basically. From 1934 up until the late 60s, it, it was not like we have today with G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17. It was every film had to have basically range from like G to P, no worse than PG-13. Yeah. The sexual content had to be extremely limited. You could only hint at it in a very subtle way. You know, that's when people like Hitchcock had to find ways to use metaphors or certain innuendos, but they could not explicitly refer. Nudity, forget about it. You could not have that. You could not curse. I mean, you, even saying something like "hell" could mm-hmm. get could get your film controversy. Violence—it's just the traditional gunshot, you know, fall over, die, and maybe a little bit of chocolate syrup comes out of the bullet yeah. wound. But it was very restrained. But once that, you know, this was New Hollywood. Friedkin, who just did the French Connection two years earlier, was a big icon of that. You saw these directors taking that and like. Now I have some freedom. Now I can explore farther. So let's take this horror movie and just go farther than we've, we would ever seen. This is not something you would see, you know, in Universal with Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi. They want, he wanted to push that. So why you see those scenes? Yeah, and yeah. I've seen videos of people being interviewed, audience members who were interviewed after seeing The Exorcist, and they were completely just shocked and traumatized by yeah. this. This was, I mean, there, it's kind of that thing where this kind of just don't see this it's horrible it's insulting you're going to get people who want to go see that because exactly right yeah that's why because people it because especially of this content involving this young girl there were reading that there were theater police said if you allow a minor into this movie we will arrest everyone who works at this movie theater yeah and uh, to that point um i i think the rating system probably did a disservice to the to the uh, audience in that I think this thing really truly rated an X. And they, they, they gave it an R, and apparently that was for marketing purposes because they wanted to make the money back after uh, investing the money in the film. 
But just from the content alone, I can tell you right now, if I was a parent and I was considering taking a kid to a movie, I would have wanted to know that uh, that content was in there before I took my film, uh, my kid in. And of course, they're not going to tell you ahead of time. All you have to go on is the rating. And R, even today in 2020, R is insufficient for that for that film yeah. as a mass release film. Yes. So uh, it was interesting at the amount of controversy that came up there with the MPAA back in 73 when it came out. Well, even I, th- I think the other thing we talk about rating it R instead of X, X has just that, just the name X. Yeah. People think it's X rated. What are they going to think? It's a porno. So there's always going to be that drawback if they're seeing, oh, it's this movie's rated X. Oh, it's just going to be porn. It's just going to be graphic sex. I don't want to see that. That's which now that's basically been replaced with NC seventeen, with which yeah. is above R, but yeah. it's not. Porn. And that and that's probably what they should have done, but they didn't have anything quite like that. Mm-hmm. So the only category they had at the time was X, yeah. and I believe at that time they also didn't have the requirement to put in you know parentheticals exactly why you're rated whatever it is, like we mm-hmm. see today. So they could have done X with, although there was sexually very graphic stuff there, it wasn't nudity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just we talk about it's when you say NC seventeen you think of exceptionally graphic violence. Elizabeth today are very, yeah. very graphic nudity. Yeah, like something like the Saw movies, which people right. are getting severed. You don't see like severed limbs, or I don't even think there's any like gr- brutal graphic violence. There's blood, but you don't like see close ups of like wounds or gashes or anything. Yeah, and, um, like the, even with all the sexual content in the movie you don't see nudity and no you don't if you did you this film would probably been like illegal because it's a minor but you don't see anything yeah it's just the it's just the connotation well i'll I'll put the and it's more than just suggestion in the one scene with the crucifix and i once again don't want to go into detail with that one um but um having said all that right this is a landmark for that reason a landmark Mm -hmm. film for that reason just the mpaa issues um i think another reason that friedkin does this and then uh the uh peter blatty william peter william peter blatty did the novel too is he's he's building up this graphic nature of this for a reason and it is it is to give as it were, meat, uh, muscle to the crisis in faith that uh, Karis is having. Um, because it, it kind of occurs to you as you're watching this film uh, that a, a perfectly legitimate question for Karis to ask, and it seems like it just naturally arise in the mind after dealing with this horrendous entity and what it's doing to others, is... A question as to why God would allow something like that to exist, um, you know, because clearly, I mean, if God is omnipotent, He can certainly very easily bring about a universe that doesn't include demons like this, and that would prevent the kind of pain and suffering that the demon is inducing. Not just in this one case, but apparently over the you know entire history of uh, humanity, and uh, that's an old. And classic philosophical nugget, the problem of evil, because even if you don't think there are demons uh, in the world, there are uh, uh, people that do evil, right? And there are also uh, uh, natural sources of pain and suffering, and they occur in a relatively high degree in, in the world. And it seems 
obvious, conceptually at least, that uh, the world could have been much the way it is with some lesser degree of this kind of thing going on. And if you're talking demons, uh, the world could have existed without demons existing. So I think something along that line of um, doubt or that yeah. line of thought is feeding Karis's doubt. Um, and what's interesting about him is contrasted with uh, 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 Marin. Yeah, is I, I don't think Marin uh, has that crisis. Effect. He has. He's absolute one hundred percent conviction in everything he does. Yes. He does not waver, and it's because we see Karis is a psychologist, and I always think he acts more like a psychologist than he does a priest. Yes. He doesn't, he, when he talks, he doesn't necessarily seem like your typical priest. He doesn't seem religious. He doesn't quote the Bible a lot. Even when mm-hmm. she, she come, when Chris comes to him with the exorcist, he says, says, why don't you go see a psychologist? Why don't you see this? He doesn't, he even talks about like an exorcist, like that's, you know, ridiculous. They don't even, it's not even really Yeah, legitimate. you're going to have to go back to the 16th century to get one of those. Yeah. He said, like you don't even, yeah. we, nobody really even knows what it is. Like he just, yeah. he almost just throws it out completely. And even when he first meets Marin, he's like acting still like a psychologist. He's saying, I think it's important that I tell you the three personalities this Reagan has acquired. And then Marin just says, there's only one. Yeah. And he, because he, because yeah. just, Marin is this man who's been, you know, he's supposedly he's been doing it for a very long time. They talked about how he just got back from Africa and it just nearly killed him because he had to do a month-long exorcism. Yes. He's even, and he's not wavering. And even because we see he has heart trouble, he's taking pills for that. He's very old, but he still never wavers. He's never afraid. And even when he sees that the demon is using the death of Karis's mother to get to Karis, because the demon is mimicking the mother's voice and saying, mm-hmm. why are you doing this to me? And it caused Karis to have a breakdown. He just immediately tells him to get out. Yeah. Even though knowing that I'm probably if I don't have somebody yeah. else to help me, I'm going to die, which eventually he does. Yeah. He does not, you know. It's a man of pure faith who is an absolute believer. He sees this evil, and he does not think it's just somebody who is mentally ill or schizophrenic. He knows what to do. And uh, watching Marin in particular, it really struck me his sense of duty. Mm-hmm. He he knows going into this case, this is probably going to be my last job. I am going to die because he's been taking those nitroglycerin pills to stop his uh, heart from stopping on him multiple times through the film, but he doesn't waver. He goes in any way to use an old cliche from uh, military history that actually was instantiated several times. This guy's jumping on the grenade to to save not only Karis, but um, uh, Reagan Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think of all the characters in this film, he's the most admirable. Um, and the interesting thing about Karis, on the other hand, as you brought up just er- a little earlier in your remarks there, is he's he's very secularized. Uh, you're right. He's a psychologist first. And I like, this, I like that they set this story at a university, a Catholic university, Georgetown, Georgetown where you've got that interesting interplay between the secular world and uh, the Catholic world that uh, um, uh, we know over the course of time that the secular influences have become greater through the advent of science, um, where by the time of the film, uh, uh, exorcisms are looked on as um, quaint 
Yeah. Um, and Chris, at the beginning, when they first suggested, he says, what, do you want me to take her to a witch doctor? Yeah. yeah. And 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 she's a, she's a good uh, kind of personification of the secularism. Well, she uses the Lord's name Many times. <laughs> very frequently yeah. without thinking about it, as most of us do, I yeah. think, if we're honest about it here in the uh, 21st century. And uh, that's on purpose, too. That is on purpose, too, to show you how far the the world has moved beyond, the the typical person has moved beyond taking seriously uh, kind of a a, a spiritual warfare picture of the universe. And they all come toward the realization at the end of the film that, you know what, uh, Marin was basically, uh, his his view of the world is actually correct. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is what's going on. And you see Karis take on that, um, once again, that very uh, almost military duty yeah. again. Almost Christ-like, if you will. Yeah. So it's it, saying that, you yeah. know, that all else has failed. This is the only way that I'm going to save Reagan is yeah. by sacrificing myself. Yes. And he's how, he's jumping on the grenade, too, to use that other analogy. Mm-hmm. And a uh, powerful part of that film um, where he, he says, take me, take me. And he stayed, even though he knew going in and was warned by Marin that this demon will do absolutely anything to defeat you. Do not listen to it. Do not react to it. Do not involve yourself in conversation to it with it. But he knew going in. I can probably take that advice, but I know I'm not going to be able to live up to it. I know I'm not because, you know, that scene with the mother speaking to him again, he has tremendous guilt feelings about that mother mm-hmm. as he was not able to place her in a quality hospital um, because, like you said, he's not making any money, vow of poverty. Uh, they put her in an asylum. And uh, all that scene in the asylum is horrible. Why are you doing this to me, Demi? Can't you get me out of here? You know, she's hurt beyond description that he has done this to her. And that eats at him and eats at him. And that demon knows it, and he's going to take advantage of that. Once again, not merely to win, but purely for purposes of taking glee and torturing. The thing that Baron says is the demon is going to make us feel we are unworthy of God's love. So that's what he is doing to Karis. Even in the the book, when you listen to it, he not only calls out Karis, he calls out Mare. He calls the demon is constantly calling everyone hypocrites. Yeah. And basically saying, none of you are deserving because you are not worthy of God's love. So you're just evil. And so what I'm doing makes it just. Yes. You're not deserving of God's love. Yes. So you're going to hell anyway. Right. And it's it's powerful and it's an effective strategy because uh, uh, as the demon knows and as we all know as uh, audience members, uh, either watching the film or reading the book, uh, we all have those, to use the cliche again, mm-hmm those demons or those skeletons in our closet, things for which we feel regret or guilt and uh, beat ourselves up over it. Um, and we also recognize at some level, if we let those things kind of overtake us and take control, uh, we will be incapable of functioning in the world and more importantly, miserable with self-loathing. And that's what that demon's trying to get, get these, uh, reduce these guys to. I'm curious, I don't... I mean, I think they left it ambiguous on purpose. I would have liked to seen what happened in the room when uh, Marin orders Karis out. Mm -hmm. Uh, All we see later is he comes in, he's dead. He's had that heart attack. Um, Curious. Uh, 
he had just taken the pills before they started, so you would think he would have been a less risk at heart attack. So the demon did something in his case that must have been truly horrific and maybe guilt-inducing that even Marin couldn't resist. I don't know. Um, but once again, it, it reinforces, for me at any rate, uh, uh, the admiration you have for the Marin character because he knows going in. He knows going in. He's not going to make it out of this. But he's willing to do it to save Ray. One I thing mean, we've does a good to job with that is how terrifying the scenes are in the hospital, especially the scene when she's Reagan's going through this procedure and they're having to st- stick her in the neck and she's spurting out blood. Oh yeah, yeah. It, that actually, when people were asked about that in the when the movie originally came out, they said that more than even all the other Exorcist stuff was more terrifying. Yeah, and it's actually been praised by medical professionals saying that this is probably when you do that procedure, this is how. It looks. Yeah. And uh, fortunately now, that's not the way they do it anymore. Uh, and this is basically a procedure injecting a radio, a radioactive, low-level radioactive um, uh, materials into the bloodstream. So you can take a, an X-ray of the brain, and they find, of course, nothing wrong, um, where you can see the vein and the veins in the blood flow. Well, back then, they had to do it up there in the carotid. And um, uh, yeah, I, I actually had difficulties watching that procedure because she had to be conscious during it right Mm -hmm. and can see she's in pain she's screaming out and they did a great job with that showing what a medical procedure is like Mm and how difficult it is not only for the patients but for the doctors um fortunately now they they do that procedure and going into a, a vein on your leg so it's a lot less uh grisly uh but again an interesting contrast of the modern scientific uh, uh, attempts to fix this problem with what ends up being the quote 16th century solution to the problem because that actually was the problem Um, but it's neat because they go through those stages when they're trying to figure out what's wrong with her first they think what's got to be physiological so they do all these brain scans and all of this that doesn't turn anything up next then they go you might say one level removed from hard science to the world of psychology and that's when Kairos comes in. And at first, he thinks this is obviously what's wrong with her. But slowly and surely, especially when he listens to these tapes, runs them backwards, and hears English in that recording. And a mention of uh, Father Marin, too. It dawns on him. The only conceivable explanation left now. Once you've removed everything that's possible and you're left with only the impossible well guess what the impossible is the explanation and that at that point he moves in a a farther removed from hard data and science into the realm of the spiritual and the 16th century so to speak um a neat progression And, and it's neat that it's a priest going, a modern priest going through this, whereas in maybe in the 16th century. Right. I'm um, getting close to the end of my questions here. Is there anything else we haven't bring up? I do want to, we talked about just briefly, because mm-hmm. this is a franchise. The second one came out in 1977, Reagan's back, and a priest is played by um, Richard Burton. Uh, that's considered, um, was directed by John Borman. Borman went on record, said he didn't even like the first movie. So it's, Friedkin disowned it. Blatty disowned it. Blatty disowned it so much that he directed a third movie, which I really highly recommend, which I think is very underrated. It came out in 1990, comes back to Georgetown, and Kinderman um, returns 
and he's the main character, and Dyer comes up, and like with that banter they have at the end, the first 20 minutes of this movie, while still being very dark, has some of the best back-and-forth dialogue. There's a rant that uh, George C. Scott uh, goes on about a carp, and it's funny. I mean, there's parts where I had to stop it because I was laughing so much, <laughs> which you needed because this the, the third one is still just as bleak and dark as this movie, but it yeah. is very good. Highly recommend. We'll have to do it because now we're looking at Kinderman, who was a homicide detective, and he is still wrestling with the same questions of faith that yeah. Karis is going on. That's a good... I don't want to spoil it because we want to do it later on, but okay. if you haven't seen it, it's highly underrated. I know there's... Some people are asking, there was two prequels, like in the 2000s, about Marin, his earlier exorcisms, and I heard they're awful. So just okay. stay away from that, yeah. but watch the third one. Highly recommend it. All right. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. Here you can also listen to other podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Duo. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, for each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.